The Loose Cannons podcast is a free-form discussion about film that contains mature language, such as poop and titty, and descriptions of mature situations, such as filing taxes and raising children. We do not have any concern for spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film or films we are discussing and don't want to have the twists ruined for you, please watch the film before listening to the podcast. <laughs> منظور تلویزیونه؟ بله خب حق با شماست ولی حالا چون نشون نمیدن مام نگیریم خب پخش کرده نمی کنی از برمون یه دفعه هم که دادی اونم شبکه دو پخش کرد برمون نگیریم برمون فرقی نمی کنه بچه ها بالاخره شما چی میگین؟ ما فیلم بگیریم یا نگیریم؟ بگیریم بگیریم پخش کنیم پخش everyone it's another loose cannons podcast mini toad coming at you uh-huh. <laughs> yo yes uh in rio dancing along the river uh and uh we wanted him for our next full episode so even though there are three of us today we're gonna do a mini sode which means no honorable mentions uh or or Sorry, heralds or denouncements. Um, and joining me, Ruben, to discuss 1993's Through the Olive Trees, directed by Abash Kiarostami, is Patrick. Yeah. There he is. Right here. And Basil. Yeah. Hello, all. And hello, audience. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Does your microphone have a leopard on it? Oh, it's, a, it's an owl, actually. It's a oh, nice. Owl. Uh-huh. It's technically a phone holder. Yeah, it's it's supposed to hold. But your it's being appropriated. Yeah, using it to hold the microphone now. <laughs> yep. Sorry, phone. You're getting the micro uh, <laughs> treatment. All of this is getting cut. <laughs> no. Cut <it> out. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> no anything that, 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 anything that humanizes, hum- humanizes us as people, gone. <laughs> Just raw, straight <laughs> film analysis. Yeah. And I'm going to cut out all the like pauses and breaths too. So it's just going to be like mm. 20 straight minutes of people yelling film. Film, 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 This wasn't anyone's pick, or I guess it was everyone's pick, but I'm going to take over the duty for describing the plot, which I'll do really quickly, uh, since that's not really the focus of the movie. Um, it takes place in a small town in Iran that... Uh, has relatively recently suffered from a devastating earthquake. There, a filmmaker is making a movie, um, and the, this film, not the diegetic film, uh, is about <laughs> the kind of troubles of filmmaking and the way that it intrudes on small town life, and also a narrative about one of the main actors is has feelings for the woman that he is diegetically married to in the film and that is causing issues as well diegetically married to yeah it's a good <laughs> phrase <laughs> i'm only diegetically married to this person <laughs> all right coffee man what yeah. did you think of this movie um i like this movie i think it is uh it gets one very big thing right about filmmaking which is that it's very very tedious <laughs> and um, I, I find that the way that it uses its humor to uh, set that up is pretty funny. 
So yeah, it's a it's a funny movie that I don't know. It's just like it's such dry humor that it's easy to miss. I guess you can you can I'm sure like people find this kind of thing boring, but I liked watching it and I liked the way that a lot of the shots were set up in it and that you got to look at them for a very long time most of the time. Yeah. Classic Kiarostami. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's jokes about the problem with making movies that way when they keep messing up the long takes, which is also funny. Yeah. Basil? Uh, I also like this movie. Uh, I like this movie a lot, actually. I think uh, I was pretty on board for it in a kind of light way where I was like, hmm, this is a fun, yeah. strange movie for most of it. And then for the last, you know, 10 minutes or whatever, I was like, oh, no, now I'm just upset. <laughs> <laughs> also, classic Kiyosami. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I was pretty on board. Same. I don't think he's made a movie that I dislike, and I think along with his other movie that I've seen about filmmakers, um, The Wind Will Carry Us, it's probably my favorite, either nice. this one or that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think he his docudrama style manages to capture the tension that I feel about film pretty perfectly which is that it's like an irrefutable reality that it's like tied to reality more than any other type of art and yet it's also Mm. completely and totally fake like at the exact same time that it's a complete that yeah what i just said i don't need to reiterate Mm. it um and you know other directors toy with that idea and i don't think any of them accomplish it quite as well as this guy does he's the master (laughs) yeah i think like the movie kind of hits the ground running when he's just talking to all those like young girls and he's trying to pick which one to be in the movie and like what a ridiculous process just casting even is it's like here's a bunch of people who are all non-professionals and basically you know they're all just teenage girls they basically look like the same and he makes a joke about it because they're all wearing like uh black whatever so it's like the only thing distinguishing them really is the little bit of their face that they can see (laughs) and be like to be like hmm which person do i put in the movie based on this amount of information (laughs) extremely small amount yeah and the idea that you could like really nail it you're like hmm i'm I'm an artist i got an i got a vision (laughs) this person yeah i'm gonna make the movie great i also think that it's funny that in the scenes, like, I'm assuming not throughout the whole movie, but in the, the scenes that, that we see them shoot in this movie, like, the actress is not even on screen at all. Mm-hmm. It's, just the, it's just her, like, talking off screen to the guy who's walking on the stairs for the one scene that the, we see them shoot in the movie. And I thought that was a pretty funny joke, too. Where it's like, you go through this process of picking someone because of the way they look, but then, like, you don't even see them on screen in the <laughs> movie, and it's like, what are you even picking this person for? And, uh, yeah, no, um, I kind of wanted to talk about the the scene, I guess, that I found the funniest was when the woman who's, I guess, I don't know what her job is specifically. She seems to be kind of... She's like the production coordinator. Yeah, something like something that. Like she's, that. Also, she's also doing the slate for them, and which is like mm-hmm. a second, second camera assistant position, and 
Um, she's kind well, of they have the a pretty day. small yeah. crew, I guess. Yeah, that crew is like <laughs> yeah. 12 people. Yeah. yeah, she's kind of the first AD also. So she's doing all these different jobs, but she's trying to drive the actor to the set, and then there's like some sort of construction blocking the road, and the guy at the construction site is like, we can't move anything out of the road right now. Just have your worker in your, that you're driving in your truck help you. <laughs> She's like, he's not a worker. He's an actor. He doesn't do masonry anymore. <laughs> and he's like, no, I won't do masonry anymore. I'll act in your movie, but I'd, I'm quit masonry. <laughs> so it's like he, he is like kind of splitting hairs over like what his job is now. So he won't get out of the car and move whatever's in the road out of the way. And I think that's very funny because a lot of the times like on like professional movie sets you will end up sort of like splitting hairs over whose job it is to do something because Mm -hmm. by rules you're not allowed to like touch another department's equipment (laughs) because if you break it then you're liable for breaking their equipment and like it's this whole headache of like having to go through different departments and figure out like who's at fault for breaking this equipment and who has to pay for it and like it just like fucks with production's workflow (laughs) So I think I thought that was a very funny way of showing this without actually having to go through that whole rigmarole. But it's like mm-hmm. he's splitting the hairs over like I I quit this job because I didn't want to do it anymore, so I'm not going to do it. And it's like you could just yeah. move the thing out of the road, whatever. I think it is. on from on a character standpoint, it's also getting into his class obsession a little mm-hmm. bit, mm-hmm. Um, which I guess can lead into the first thing that I wanted to talk about. Um, which like uh, overarching is men's ability to rationalize any philosophy if it centers around getting their dick wet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is that like this guy has like a thing that he says that I agree with essentially where he's like, you know, literate people should marry illiterate people. People with land should marry people without land. Rich people should marry poor people. We should have like essentially a classless society. We should have people Mm. crossing their ranks to, you know, create more, equality but that's not we know that's not why he's arguing for it he's not arguing for it because it's just he's arguing yeah. for it because he it feels like he's on the receiving end of the bad and it reminds me so much of like this thing that like as leftism becomes a little more popular in the states of like guys trolling the dsa for new dates they're like mm, this is a nice place to pick up women wow. <laughs> And, like, how many of them have already been kicked out for, you know, their shitty behavior towards their comrades, um, Mm. supposed comrades. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's, I don't know, it's uh, it's movies from 1993. Kiarostami's already on that that point, and, like, he lands it, again, like, to me it's just so amazing when someone is able to be like, here's a critique of this person that, like, points out like how flawed they are but i still don't hate hussein like i never feel Mm -hmm. like i'm not like uh push him off that roof uh (laughs) whatever her name is yeah her name Mm -hmm. is harder for me to pronounce than hussein's it's like tehran but with like more letters in it yeah um where the h is placed in it it feels like there's a couple of h's that i can't figure out where they go and part of that ties back to kind of like what we started the podcast talking about like casting and the actor who plays Hussein has like these deeply empathetic sad eyes that it's like sort of hard to hate him even as he's being like really annoying um yeah the 
I guess, final or second to last scene, the last sequence where he's like following her through the woods and <laughs> he's like getting more and more out of breath. <laughs> and he's like, oh, why, why won't you answer me? And it's like, dude, her not answering you is an answer. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's, it's time to let go and move on. <laughs> he doesn't understand ghosting yet. <laughs> and he's... Uh... Yeah, it's funny just how much he, like, runs through the whole list of, like, cliches that are now the Twitter thing of being, like, you know, him being, like, oh, like, if, well, if you won't answer me, blah, 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 why don't you just uh, do this? Yeah, if turn the page. You want yeah. yeah, and, and then she's very song. consciously not yeah, turning yeah, the page. There's even one part later <laughs> when it's during the actual filming, like, not when they're just talking, where she starts to turn the page and then puts it back down so that it doesn't even happen during filming. She's like, oh, I can't ever turn this book again. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, like, him being like, oh, you know, like, well, if I could be with any woman. Lots of women would marry me, but, like, I want to be with you. Why won't you see how much I'm sacrificing by not being with these other women just to be with you? And Classic then... good compliment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I like how he starts even referring to himself in the third person during that. He's like, Hussein could have any woman. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, uh... Um, I thought, oh, sort of getting back to something that Patrick mentioned, I thought it was very funny that, uh, um, that, like, he really refuses to, like, move those bricks and stuff like that, but then the rest of the movie, he's doing minor annoying errands that, like, yeah. probably shouldn't be. Yeah. His job, like, he gets tea for everyone, and they're like, Hussein, go get tea for everyone, yeah. and it's like, getting the tea, and then he has to, like, collect all the dishes and wash them. <laughs> yeah, I think, um... It's, yeah, a, a minor point, but it's kind of like class distinctions, and especially since this guy doesn't really understand them, he's just fighting the, for them from, like, a very selfish perspective mm -hmm. that he doesn't understand, like, how meaningless class distinctions are. So he's, like, wrapped up in them. He's like, well, mm -hmm. as long as I'm an actor, it means that I'm more important than I was when I was a bricklayer. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what I'm actually doing. It doesn't matter if I'm walking from right to left in this shot 35 times because she won't call me Mr. Hossein. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. even if that's actually, if you think about <laughs> it, like a little more degrading than yeah. <laughs> just laying bricks uh, or like you said, getting tea then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and I also, but, uh, oh, I was going to say, I also think it's funny to that point that he actually goes back and says like to her when he's trying to woo her, he's like, I'll go back and do the construction work. You make more money than a doctor doing construction work or something like that. And it's like, he actually makes construction work sound better than what he's doing. Like, <laughs> And it's a better idea because, I mean, getting back to the sort of intrusiveness, like, he might be in this movie, but he's not going to be an actor now. Like, <laughs> someone, like, casting non-professionals, like, those aren't people that generally just, like, were, are in a movie and then they go on to become professional actors. Like, yeah, part of the appeal of casting them is the uh, sort of their lack of training which doesn't work in <laughs> when it, transitioning into other kinds of movie making usually yeah. but uh, can't do it but he has an idea of like oh now I'm a different person I'm gonna be in movies now that's my that's my new life yeah which also ties into that sort of like overarching 
Kiarostami thing about the tension between like reality and fantasy in movies is that mm-hmm. um, he's working off two fantasies really one uh, the fantasy of movie making as being like more creative and interesting and like you know sexy than it actually is and right. that he can use that to sell other people on his importance as a person and then of course also the like typical uh narrative in movies and other narrative art of like a guy wooing a girl who was like at first resistant to the idea mm-hmm. <laughs> but then he wears her down yeah <laughs> uh did you guys notice that uh abash kirastami's in this movie for a second that was very funny um, so is had your panahi apparently <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i didn't i um i didn't see panahi or, uh, but uh, he says his name like he says his he name says to someone multiple off, times, off yeah. screen <laughs> yeah I couldn't figure out which person he was probably much younger in this one too so it's probably harder to tell but, uh, I think I would still recognize him maybe but I mean I didn't like I didn't stare like yeah. an yeah. hour and 37 I'm, minutes straight at the screen I might have looked yeah. down and blinked and missed it because uh-huh. Kiristami is like a blink and miss it. He's only in it for like a second when they, yes. when Hussein actually wanders into a different film shoot <laughs> in, in the same location. Yeah. It's, it's always, yeah, it's very funny to me that I was like, oh, is this like when the when the whole thing started, when he got cast in the film? I was like, oh no, this is just a completely different movie that he's wandered <laughs> into. And I was like, wow, it's kind of it's kind of wild. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I did also want to talk about like when we talked about the very beginning scene. There's another part where uh, the the girls are like mad at the director, uh, like when he's talking about like, oh, should we make this movie? Should we not make it? And some of them are like, yeah, make it, but like let us see it this time. Yeah. I like this idea. They're upset that, because uh, his last film wasn't broadcast in their town, mm-hmm. and they're like, we don't want to be in your film if we can't watch it. <laughs> yeah, which is like a uh, another kind of push and pull of like the idea of making movies in uh, kind of you know uh, I guess what's the word like like governments that have a really high control over like what kind of content does and doesn't get made. It's like I'm sure it wasn't broadcast in the town because you know uh, <laughs> of restrictions in that regard. So it's like. Uh, what is the point of making art that's supposed to be like uplifting to kind of repressed people if they can't even have access to, to kind of uh, enjoy that solidarity? Yeah, that aspect of it reminded me a little bit of Mulade, or I guess at least it's like literal history, which is that in order, you know, it was being shown in like Europe and place in New York and Los Angeles, and everyone was loving it. And some Ben was like very clear, he's like, whatever money we make in those places, we have to use that to take it to Africa and <laughs> show it to the people in the these cities and these towns who are actually suffering from, you know, this, the female genital mutilation problem. Like, they have mm. to be able to see it like it's for them. Um, right. And so they had, like, uh, at each screening, they would, like, hand out, like, flyers about donating to get money enough so that they could show it to where it was actually supposed to go. <laughs> yeah. That's a bummer. Yeah. But it makes I think they were mildly successful doing that. Sure. I would hope so. But 
I, it's, you know, it's always hard to tell because it's it's weird that push and pull between the like success as we think of it for a director and the actual like su- like financial success of their movies um, mm-hmm. because like you will see directors like Kiristami or Sanben who are like legends in the filmmaking community and like anybody would you know anybody who knows about film would be like oh yeah like I would love to work with them you know I'd, I'd love to see their next picture like they're very respected but like in you know in their own country like they don't even have enough power to get their movies shown to people where they live yeah. and it's a very strange dichotomy where it's like oh this you know I don't know like international bourgeois culture really really values this kind of like down-to-earth approach that they bring but it comes at the cost of like ignoring the fact that the people who they are making the stories about are just being completely ignored and yeah yeah. i mean uh i'm i'm pretty sure i mentioned it on the podcast before but like sean baker had to declare bankruptcy and like live with his parents after he made tangerine he was like selling his he would get like free dvds from uh you know, different companies that wanted him to watch their movies, and then he would sell them on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sad. Someone asked him about it. I guess he's doing better now, because yeah. someone asked him about it on Letterboxd, and he's like, I'm holding on to my Blu-rays for now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's how it goes. Even in America. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. We can't get this right. I did um, one thing. I did find weird about this movie. Just, I guess just because I'm a sound person, and I noticed that like they do very clearly have a sound person on this movie, but I don't, I don't understand where he's placing his mics <laughs> at all. I, I guess he's done like place mics on the set or something like that. That's the only thing I could figure out because um, the actors don't seem to be wearing mics. And there mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be like an actual boom microphone anywhere no. nearby. So I was like, oh, he must have like placed, you know, like either wireless mics or something like on the set itself. Because a couple of times when he's doing the thing on the stairway where he keeps turning his head back and like down and stuff like that, the like sound of his voice will change a little bit, kind of like he's going past the mic and back and I forth. I like how you're indicating this for all students <laughs> yeah, by also so turning away from these mics. <laughs> no, they'll be able to hear it because yeah. you keep turning away yeah. from the mic. Perfect. Back at the mic like that, yeah. So, Like that classic scene in Singing in the Rain. Yep. Mm-hmm. Got a mic I was thinking of that too. It's very important. <laughs> Especially those early mics like Singing in the Rain. Yeah, it's, it's very funny stuff. But uh, no, I I just picked up on that and I was kind of like curious as to what kind of equipment they would have had at that point in Iranian filmmaking because um, I know a lot of times like before a certain time period, like before a certain type of technology was available, you just had to shoot without sync sound and just do it all in post. Um, mm-hmm. I know that's the way a lot of Italian films used to do, like Italian horror films used to just shoot and then just everything was done in post. Um, and so... Like, yeah, sync sound is actually... I mean, I think part of it was just tradition because they could have done it differently, but I think it's like 
not until the 80s that sync sound was pretty yeah. uh, common in Italian movies. Yeah. Which is uh, kind of cool for Italian horror movies. It makes it a little more spooky, a little <laughs> ghosty. Yep. But, um, yeah, no, I was... I don't... That's one thing that I'm not super clear on is, like, the timeline of when certain technology was available. I don't know when the switchover from recording on, like, magnetic tape to recording on digital happened in filmmaking, um, especially in, like, international filmmaking. So I, I couldn't say for sure, like, probably what kind of equipment he was using at that point. I'm assuming it was still using tape, but... It's maybe too much of a, an assumption. I, do, I genuinely don't know. I have no contributions to discussions of technology involved in filmmaking. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't speculate either because, I mean, you know, even within, you know, like the U.S. or whatever, people switched over at differing rates based on what they're used to. Like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah. Spielberg, I think finally shoots on digital but he was one of the last big directors to yeah uh, go back on that and actually i remember i'm sure he doesn't now but like even way after other people had given it up he was still editing like film like on editing. film yeah. yeah yeah like with his editor and he's like ah, I, I like it better and i was like man that sounds like a huge pain <laughs> in the ass digital editing yeah it's still very tedious but it's like a hundred times less <laughs> yeah that's but. yeah i mean uh, the i guess like if you wanted to point to like a i don't know like the watershed moment in american filmmaking where the switch from digital to film happened i think there were like the marvel movies i guess is the where the switch actually happened like the first two marvel movies were shot on film and then after that they were all digital so i think it's like the star wars prequels this well that's when Lucas made it a thing, but he. But it wasn't, it wasn't standard. Why, yeah, it wasn't for standard, a while. but wasn't that's standard. the watershed yeah. moment. He invested five hundred million dollars in being able to shoot it all on digital, and it probably would have taken a decade or more longer for us to switch to digital if he hadn't done that. Well, I guess so. <laughs> but but I, I'm thinking of like when it was when it was actually just like the common practice in the industry, and I think the turning point. Yeah, and I think it was after that, like after. You know, um, I can't remember if they were actually part of Disney at this point, but like when they made that switch, it was basically like every big movie is going to shoot on digital now. Like, there's not a question of whether or not you're going to shoot it on film. Anyway. Unless they're Nolan or Terrence, yeah, unless, unless you're some director who like rude guys putting their foot down. Yeah, but like everything is going to be, you know, who thinks that shooting on film means <laughs> like high class art filmmaking? So they stick with yeah. it, regardless of... <laughs> Nolan insists that it's cheaper. <laughs> I don't know how he gets away with that. I, I guess because he doesn't shoot very much coverage. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on how you shoot your movie, I guess. <laughs> you just do one take of everything, then maybe, yeah. Um, getting back to Off topic. this movie, <laughs> um, it's already kind of come up twice, but I, I wanted to talk about framing, which is just like... I mean, maybe it's something that's only appreciated by people who watch lots and lots of movies, because I think a lot of people who don't watch a lot of movies would think that this movie was dull, but I don't. Mm -mm. <laughs> For that specific reason, I think Avash Kiarostami 
has a very unique eye for how to frame things. Patrick sort of already brought it up that like there are a lot of shots where you're just looking at a road or something and people are talking essentially behind the camera um, and you're watching the road just like mm -hmm. these people have this conversation and it's, you know, it's so against what you would expect from American film from a two, you know, that's people are having a conversation. You got to see what their faces look like as they're saying mm -hmm. it. So you got to have that two shot. You got to have that over the shoulder. You got to have that close up when they say something important. And in this case, you're just looking at this empty road. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it, it causes this like weird tension in me because of my expectations for how this scene is supposed to play out. I'm like, what do they look like? How do they feel about this conversation? It feels like two robots having a conversation because I can't see their faces. And uh, I mean, that's yeah, an obvious example, but. In that really long shot, I think it's also something of a surprise that she's the one driving, which yeah. I thought was interesting. I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> good one. Yeah, it's a good but, nice uh, reversal. Yeah, I think that there's also the, the side shots that are really weird and interesting and sort of like, haunting like the two boys that bring the flowers yeah and it's like a shot out the window but the rear view mirror and like seeing yeah. them like appearing and disappearing into the frame through the rear view mirror is like really cool and unsettling Side view mirror. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um yeah there's something it's like uh it's amazing that like you know the way you use mirrors in film to like be able to capture like more of the shot it's like you're filling up an empty space with more you know tangible space by like putting their faces in it and yet it's also like again that's like weirdly frustrating it's like you get to see such a small amount of what's mm -hmm. reflected in the mirror especially in such a small mirror that it's like you're just getting these little little peaks <laughs> and the majority of the shot is just you know the trees and the <laughs> landscape which you're like sort of ignoring, which yeah. is kind of a, yeah. Uh, I feel like especially what always impresses me about Kiristami is that he's able to do that and it doesn't feel like trying too hard. Like I feel yeah. like oh, there are a lot of movies that would attempt kind of more offbeat shots like this, but like it just feels like it's for that purpose. It's like, ooh. People don't usually do it like this. Yeah. That's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, if I had to guess why it doesn't feel as uh, try hard, I guess, it's because mm -hmm. he often still uses motivated locations. Like that shot that I mentioned is like from the driver's seat of the car, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's like, it's like you're driving and then there are two people yeah. talking behind you that you can't see. And so like, mm -hmm. oh, that's a weird place to put the camera considering the conversation, but not a weird place to put the camera in general. Right. <laughs> and that's a very disconcerting shot and how long it lasts, like, yeah. and just kind of <laughs> bouncing along. <laughs> Yeah, up and down, slowing down for some. And I think it's curves. kind of perfectly blocked in the way of like you're watching through the car, or maybe it's attached to the hood. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so you're watching through the car, How it feels. and so you see this guy like run up to the car and being like, "Oh, I didn't know where you were, so I started walking or whatever." So you see him like very briefly, and then he walks past the camera and gets, and then you can only hear him after that. And it's like mm -hmm. you're like wait i barely even got to see him <laughs> and mm -hmm. now i'm just listening to him um something that 
again about framing the tight end to something mm -hmm. Patrick said. Oh, the mundanity of film, I think, is also perfectly illustrated by the framing, which is that like a lot mm -hmm. of the film is shot from these interesting angles or from these moving shots, like in cars, and a bunch of this film is driving, which I lo yeah. I love because it's like mm -hmm. Iran is like this big countryside country. It's just like to get from any town to any other town, you have to drive for 30 minutes everywhere. And so there's a reality to that that I appreciate. And all of that stuff is like kind of exciting. And then when it gets to the part where it's really showing like the filmmaking happening, it's just this one long still shot of the, <laughs> this, these people yeah. like sitting on this dilapidated house and stairs and talking to each other. And that's just like cut, do yeah. it again. Yeah, it's, cut. it's by far the least interesting looking place in the movie too which i think is very funny it's like that's where they're shooting the movie the least interesting looking spot in the entire countryside <laughs> and they have all these flowers that don't even really yeah. appear in the frame they like went all this effort to like get them and they're like just barely at the top of the shot yeah but uh oh the also the um part of during the finale, well, I mean, there's like three very, very good shots during the confrontation part where he's following her. It's like the camera's like constantly just slightly moving to the right. And like he's talking so much and it's so repetitive. I couldn't tell for sure, but it looked like sometimes when it cut to him, he was like walking through the same backdrop again <laughs> and again. And like whether or not that's actually true, just like getting that feeling, I was just like, oh, it's just like, it feels like they're just wandering around in circles. And that's like a really great uh, visual representation. And then, of course, the final shot is like really beautiful and yeah. uh, unnerving with how far away they get from. I was like, oh no, like this guy's like a little bit unhinged, like how far away now I'm actually like concerned for this person that he's following because I can't tell like how close he is to her, like what's going on. I felt the same on. way and I think that's so great because it's not like you could do anything. If he's yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like the distance that it creates between you and the character like you know it's that traditional sort of like john carpenter horror style where it's like actually shooting something far away like losing the detail gives you like a level of tension that like being up close and seeing everything doesn't that you're like i wish that there was something that i could do here like if you're up <laughs> yeah. close you could you could feel it and i also love just uh, it not really have to do with the framing, but the ambiguity of the ending that like they meet for like a second and then he starts running back towards the camera and you think that he's going to get to the camera and like say something or interact and be like, mm -hmm. she said she would marry me or whatever you want to implant on the film, but then it just cuts and then this music starts yeah. playing like this upbeat music and you're like, <laughs> wait, so what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Why is he running yeah. away from her? Did she attack him? Did she say she would marry him? Did, <laughs> did he attack yeah. her? Like... <laughs> Yeah, I th there's even small details because like he was carrying those things and then he set them down at some point. It could be that he's like, "Oh, I gotta go get those things, but I'll be back." <laughs> yeah. like, Who knows? It's a great yeah. ambiguous ending, in my opinion. Yeah, and and I also like that they uh, just briefly input there the director of, as like following them, so you even get this more motivated thing where it's like, "Oh, I'm the director. I'm like following and like." Kind of how creepily he's sort of like smiling at like what's happening. Yeah, because he's he's also like throughout the movie sort of encouraging Hussein to like keep following up on this, even though he like chastises him sometimes. Like 
you know, he sees her walking away and then is like, oh, you don't have to wait for this truck. You could walk too. Yeah. Kind of fully knowing that he's probably going to keep following her. And so, like, then implanting himself is like, oh, this is still, like, you know, yeah. this guy's, like, yeah. making the, a movie The happen woman who's, like, off. a little more aware of the, I guess, the risks of what's going mm-hmm. on um, is like, hey, you can't, like, you have to choose whichever one you want more and recast mm-hmm. the other role. And he's like, mm, maybe we have to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like his whole thing is like he instead of just like being like firmly to Hussein, like, no, like this isn't happening. Mm-hmm. He keeps trying to like control his behavior to make it like better somehow, because yeah, he also given... sort of doesn't accept that like she just doesn't want him. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So uh, he's manufacturing. A story. So he's like, he's like, uh, he's like, you were rude. You, you kept saying hello. And she wasn't saying anything back. And he was like, I was following your advice. And he said, I said to say hello once. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's kind of being like, hey, you need to pursue her, but be nicer about it. <laughs> Which right. is like not the right conclusion. <laughs> But that also ties into like the other sort of, I think the main theme and like the thing that uh, I personally find most interesting, which is Kiarostami's ability to capture how intrusive filmmaking is. Like that's part of why he doesn't understand it is he's like, "Mm, I can be respectful of these people and make this film, but like you can't really, like that's not (laughs) something you succeeded doing, like probably the best scene that exemplifies this is when he's like, oh, here's some people walking back we'll be nice, we've got this truck, everyone get up in here, and he's like, oh, while you're here would you like to be in the film? And she's like, no Yeah. (laughs) and he's like, what's your name? and Hussein has to be like, they can't give their names to strangers yeah, it's like the custom, yeah I I, I like that he just keeps trying and he's like, what's what's your address in case we want to use you? And she's like, we don't have an address. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, but what's your address? And she's like, our ho- we don't have a house. Like, <laughs> it's yeah, it's a it's a very weird conversation where he keeps trying to get this information. It's like, do you not understand? Like, we literally cannot capitulate with what you're asking us, and we're not interested. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, uh, I like that, and I like the way that that conversation then dovetails into the conversation we brought up earlier, which is like, then the director's kind of like, hmm, she is pretty, what about her, Hussein? Even if I can't get her in my movie, you know, maybe she'll be more receptive. And he's like, ah, and that's like what starts the conversation that he doesn't want to marry her because she's also <laughs> illiterate. And, you know, it's like a an interesting uh I mean, it's a sad idea, I guess, also, because similar to what you're talking about, that's, like, another point that's, like, oh, that's a solid point. Like, if you want your kids to go to school and neither you nor your significant other raising them can read, that they they don't have a real pathway to success in school. Uh, But then also, you know, his solution is just that he has to marry a literate woman rather than either of them trying to learn to read yeah, as adults. To learn to read. Yeah. Like, I'll just marry someone who already has that skill. Passing off the emotional yeah. labor to the mom. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, something Haley's been very annoyed and struggling with is that Pearl's bad at math. And Haley's like, I thought I was done with math, but now I have to relearn math again so I can help my kid learn math. <laughs> oh, no. It's tough. Um, 
And yeah, I guess I think like the whole like again director scenario, like he's not a villain or anything, but there's a way in which his like benevolent patriarchy is so similar to a lot of especially white people going to countries that don't have mm-hmm. the same level of social or economic infrastructure and trying to like force people to be the type of woke they think they should be or like right. you know it also like underlines all sort of what about isms like people in america complaining about their situation and they're like well so and so in iran has it worse and it's like you don't know the types of choices that they're making you're just (laughs) putting that on them as a way to defer from the types of choices in the system that you're participating in (laughs) yeah Yeah, the recent opening up of cuba i remember Haley told me about an article she read where someone went to that cuba and was just like oh my god can you believe it they still have VCRs here, like what a horrible country <laughs> to live in. <laughs> like, is it free healthcare, but VCRs? Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> free healthcare and education, but uh, they don't have DVD players. No, no Blu-rays. <laughs> they don't have Blu-rays. How do I watch my yeah. Netflix? Yeah. <laughs> There's no Wi-Fi. Where are my amenities? Uh, <laughs> What a great massive trick that corporate capitalist America has pulled on us that they're like, you have like this phone and this television and that's, and they, they've they like revealed their hand at this point. They're like, if you didn't have an iPhone, you could afford healthcare. And it's like, no, we couldn't. <laughs> yeah. That's an enormous lie. But they're, they're trying to say that that's a choice that we made like and that we continue to make. And it's like, no, most people, if they could choose between an iPhone and uh, healthcare, they would choose healthcare. <laughs> yeah, we were never given that choice. It was forced it upon us. Mm-hmm. But look how but cheap also, we made know. it. Yeah. <laughs> look how cheap TVs are. <laughs> Watch more Netflix. No, yeah. That's. Um, God, there was something else I was going to. We decided which luxury we wanted. Yeah. And it was phones. Yeah. Oh, um, I was going to go back to the. The part where the director is walking and talking, I think it's with his DP or somebody, um, but he's talking about the region and like how clean the air is. And he's like, ah, oh, the air out here is so good. Like, why wouldn't more people want to stay out here in the air? And the guy says something along the lines of like, you can't live on just fresh air. He's like, they left because there was an earthquake and there was no like food. Like they had like their infrastructure was destroyed. And so they had to go live near where there was still infrastructure that they could actually like get their basic needs. But yeah, it's it's a very like bourgeois concern where he's like, oh, the air is so fresh. <laughs> Not like the city that we live in, but but yeah, there's a funny part with that when the guy's still talking about it, and then uh, eventually they're just like, ah, let's stop saying cliches. <laughs> Because it's like, no wonder, so uh, Tehran has 13 million people or whatever. And they're like, all right, we got to the end of this conversation. (laughs) People live in cities because they need stuff. We got it. Yeah. I can't exactly put my finger on it, but um, so maybe there's no even reason to bring it up. But there is a pervasive sense of grief in this film brought upon Mm -hmm. by the earthquake. And it's just, you know, 
That's the kind of thing that a really talented director can do, and that mm-hmm. even like a good but not great director can't. Like mm-hmm. he, uh, Kiyosami never had to have anyone talk about the earthquake for you to know that something is wrong. Um, mm-hmm. So when they do, it's just it's sort of like just that feeling of being like, oh, those are the words that I was looking for. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the the weird part because initially he's messing up one of the takes because he keeps saying twenty five people instead of sixty five, and the director keeps insisting that it's sixty five, which is like it's a weird thing because clearly the way Hussein's saying it, like twenty five, feels more real to him as like a a number to say. But the director's like, no, sixty five. That sounds better. Just say it's sixty five. <laughs> gotta make it really sad yeah yeah and part of uh i think what i like about that kind of it's not exactly a gag but it's this running thing in the movie where every time they talk about someone who was killed in the earth earthquake they just say like god bless them or whatever you know like Mm -hmm. you know bless bless their soul or bless their spirit or whatever and that could have been, like, I think, maybe like in the hands of a lesser director, like it could have come off as like a joke. But here, like the way people say it, they sound kind of exhausted when they say it, and they're just like, "Oh man!" Like it's almost like they're thinking, like, "Oh, that's another person that's gone. Like, so that's another human life that that's been extinguished." Each time they have to say it, and they're like, "Oh, that person is, you know, has been wiped off the face of the earth." and I, I, there's something about the way that everybody said it every time it came up was it, it actually like gave it that little bit of extra weight to it mm-hmm. it's terrible yeah. yeah I think probably the best scene about that is when I don't know exactly where they are but there's like they're like a, an encampment and there's an old man there and he's like oh you're wife died in the earthquake you should remarry and he's like i was married to her for 50 years and i had six children it wouldn't be right and like he doesn't understand that for some reason like that this guy is settled being alone that he doesn't feel like you know that filling whatever hole was created by losing her would actually be yeah a disservice that it would be wrong that it wouldn't make him feel better it would make him feel worse yeah yeah and the and the director is just approaching it from a very strangely placating thing where because the guy's like mm, i'm towards the end of my life like i'm ready to just do this cook food and then die and he's like nah nah what are you talking about you're in your prime yeah. such a western <laughs> conception as well like that yeah. there isn't like a life cycle or that following the life cycle is bad um i've talked about this probably not on podcasts maybe when i talked about another year the idea that Mm -hmm. so many movies in america when they focus on old people are about them recapturing their youth as opposed to enjoying their old age for what it is (laughs) so you get movies like the bucket list where old men are jumping out of planes and it's like is that really what like old, old people, people feel represented feel represented yeah. by or does that just yeah. make them sad yeah because they're not multimillionaires. Like, <laughs> right yeah it's like uh 
Yeah, is that a catharsis that people get and want when they watch a movie? Be like, ah, uh, I guess some people. I mean, that movie is kind of a big hit, but yeah. I, I guess it's similar to the Fifty Shades of Grey thing when she's like, he takes her flying in a jet or whatever, and people are like, ah, I wish somebody would take me flying <laughs> in a jet. Glider. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, it's a glider. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, my grandmother died pretty recently, and pretty much, you know, her last couple years were her just reinforcing her routine even more, growing food in her garden, trying to swim as much as she can, teaching uh, kids because she was teaching a lot of English as second language uh, children, and she didn't feel the need to do anything different. She had come into her routine over 80 to 90 years of figuring out what she liked in life. <laughs> mm-hmm. She didn't need to, like, shake it up. <laughs> yeah. True. She had a lot of self wisdom. <laughs> that's what my grandparents did too. I, uh, I mean, I guess that's what they wanted to do. So, good on good on them. They bought a house in the middle of nowhere and watched Matlock and <laughs> went to church and stuff. And it's like, I was like, man, if I were retired, I would have done. I would do things differently. But they're doing what they liked, I guess. So, <laughs> enjoy it. I, I just. I would enjoy different things, probably, but... I think that's it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I think we nailed it. <laughs> yeah. We did. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next week, I believe we're going to be doing the last picture show. Hopefully. Hopefully so with the get whole everyone game. together. Uh, the last podcast show. <laughs> I don't know if we've specifically advertised that yet, but yeah, it might be the last of this format. Um, and we still have the end of the year coming, but then we have some big news in the offing. So subscribe to the podcast to hear more <laughs> about that. You can also always visit our website, loosecannons.net, to check out any of our older, worser podcasts, as well as any other content that we've made. Um, and if uh, you want to give us money or pay us to do something, you can go to our Patreon patreon.com forward slash loose cannons and donate there we do appreciate every donation that anyone can make no matter how small yeah thank you for listening yeah bye bye Mm -hmm. bye